0: Welcome back to the Depth & Light Podcast. I'm J.D. Pertle. In this episode of the podcast, we chat with Cass Holman. Cass is the founder and principal designer at Heroes Will Rise, an independent toy company focusing on products designed in the spirit of invention and creativity. She is also full-time faculty at Rhode Island School of Design in the Industrial Design Department. Educator and physician Maria Montessori stated that play is the work of the child. The tools to accomplish this work are most often toys. Unfortunately, all toys are not equal. Some toys are very open-ended, and those who play with them can decide how they will play and to what end, if there is an end. But all too often, toys have an implicit context, purpose, or a quote-unquote right way to play with them. Many toys reinforce stereotypes and are designed to lead each child to the same goal. Montessori saw play as an enjoyable and purposeful medium for children to create knowledge, exercise their minds and bodies, generate ideas, and build interpersonal skills. Montessori was not alone in her thinking. Albert Einstein said that play is the highest form of research. There is profound evidence that play-based education is effective for a variety of ages and content areas. Many schools feature play-based curriculum in preschool and it continues through early childhood but then gradually phase out play in favor of test preparation and rote memorization. Designers and educators like Kaz Holman are creating frameworks for open-ended play and exploration, unbounded by age or grade level. Her project, Rigamajig, is a set of creative tools in the form of plywood parts of various shapes and sizes, large plastic hardware fasteners designed to accommodate small hands, wheels, and pulleys which can be combined into myriad forms and functions. Kaz designed another project affectionately known as Big Blue Blocks with Imagination Playground. Big Blue Blocks come in a variety of shapes and sizes and are simultaneously large and interchangeable, but made of a foam light enough to be hefted by a preschooler. Up next, my conversation with Kaz Holman. Kaz, I just want to say thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. I really appreciate it, and we're excited to have this conversation.
1: Oh yeah, me too. Thanks for having me.
0: So I just to start, I guess as a designer, I think it's really interesting. I, I was curious about what path led you to designing toys, playgrounds, and you know, tools for creativity for children.
1: Oh my! Um, well, I uh, I've always been an artist, and I've always played. Um, Uh, My undergrad was feminist theory and fine art sculpture, um, which I think makes the perfect designer, to be Mm -hmm. honest, (laughs) not to brag, Mm -hmm. but the perfect design recipe is feminism and sculpture. Um, But it took me a while to kind of bring those two things together in what uh, became my job. Um, I was 28 by the time I kind of realized that I wanted to go back to school for design. And and kind of um, use the the market as a as a way to um, reach more people than than um, the the kind of audience I was finding through making art. Mm-hmm. And so um, I think that that a lot of my my earlier work was uh, it was kind of interactive. Like I, I liked it when people used the things; they were kind of functional. One-off furniture pieces or um, GMO, which wound up being my first kind of toy and my first product, began mm. as a as a sculpture that I wanted people to play with um, and found that it was really hard to get people to to interact with um with art with what is considered art. I think it's getting easier. There's I think museums are much more um and and because of interactive art and interaction design, um, we as visitors are getting a little more comfortable touching things in museums.
2: Mm-hmm. But
1: when I, when I originally installed, um, GMO and I think 2004, um, at the Cranbrook art museum, uh, I, I really couldn't get people to play with it. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, um, uh, so in doing so, and, you know, once I, I kind of had some sp- special events where people came in and and played and and I got to to really see the the transformation of of a child playing with something that really uh inspired them and um kind of sparked their imagination and um I when I saw that happen uh, in the in the in the families that were using it I kind of knew that that was a really powerful thing and I wanted to kind of figure it out and fine tune it and do a lot more of it. Um, and so from there, I, I kind of just kept trying to find opportunities to do that. And, and things, I wouldn't say fell into place cause, um, I, I don't find that things necessarily fall into place. I think we make them happen, mm-hmm. the balance of make it happen and let it happen. But I, I think I was, I was on a path that made a lot of sense for me. So things, um, uh, things kind of started to unfold in a way that led me to here,
0: and so then you founded uh, Heroes Will Rise, and I think that's such an aspirational and an amazing name for a company. What was the inspiration behind that name?
1: Uh, well, just that actually. That that yeah. I, I think it um, um it it may have been a, a different version of of some graffiti that I had seen uh, yeah. in San Francisco uh, that may have been like you know. Um, leaders will rise, or to, but, but kind of these, these, um, protest chants. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, and, and the, you know, I, I knew that the goal of my company was about, uh, em- empowering kids and trusting, um, children and, and giving them the tools to become like the, 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 the future to become the people who will, um, uh, uh, make a positive future. And so I think that, uh, and that was in 2006 that I founded the company. And I, I think it's, it's kind of to the point now that, that it it's making sense and that people get that in a way that I, I don't, I find myself kind of over explaining or, or unsure whether or not, um, the people I'm talking to kind of get it every once in a while. I'll, I'll, I'll I'll say the name of my company and they assume it somehow relates to military supplies. Oh, wow. Well. Um, and I'm like, yes, also heroes, however, <laughs> different, <laughs> different direction.
0: <laughs> yeah. I've heard you describe design as a form of activism. Is this kind of like the name of that company? Is that kind of in that same vein?
1: Yes, absolutely.
0: Yeah. And, and what's interesting is, you know, I've, one of the things that uh, this kind of, uh, when I was watching the abstract special, it just kind of hit me, you know, very personally. I, when I was hearing you talk about the importance of play and reading some things you've said about the importance of adults having more play in their life, I suddenly realized that maybe my own career choices have been subconsciously driven by trying to find ways to play and have open ended discovery. I mean, do you feel that play has kind of driven your career choices and the choices you've made as a designer?
1: Yeah, I, I think that. The- after I had my my first kind of office job, I was a, I was a chef for or different versions of a pastry chef or a, a kind of short order cook. I worked in restaurants for um, eight eight or so years. That all through mm-hmm. undergrad and when I was in high school, my my nights and weekends job was in a bakery and and um, and there's a I mean that of course, just in making things and in the pastry chef as a creative outlet, like that was always very, I enjoyed it so much. It was, was really fun. Um, mm-hmm. uh, but there was something about having, you know, I, I'd, I'd, you know, gone to college. So I, and I'd never worked in, 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 in kind of an office. I never had something that looked like what uh, at least in the eighties and nineties would be described as a career. So I kind of felt compelled to try out this kind of office job sort of scenario. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I, once I kind of realized that I could do that because I didn't know that I could do that, um, it freed me up to not do that. <laughs> so mm-hmm. I kind of had the moment like, oh, okay, so now that I know that that's a thing I can do, which was hugely empowering. Cause I, I frankly didn't think I could, um, I realized that I could kind of pass, uh, as a, as a professional person. Uh, then I, I didn't need to. And, and I, and I kind of committed from there to, to really only have jobs that, that meant something and that were, you know, I could be myself and that were, um, I I mean, fun is kind of a tricky word, but fulfilling in certain ways. And so for me, that's, you know, that is, that is play and playful. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that also any job you can be playful in. And I think, um, you know, there were times in, in working um, at the Rockwell Group where uh, I had a really great collaborator, Ari Nagasaka, and we kind of shared this little cubicle. And, you know, we're sitting at computers and using mostly AutoCAD or kind of doing some design sketching and, and project management for some some of the projects at Rockwell Group. But like she and I were just such playful people that everything we did was, you know, silly in the way that we had meetings within the project and the way that she and I just went about our days. Mm -hmm. And so I'm, I'm also just aware that I think like work can be playful and someone can set up kind of a playful life. But I, I think just how we, how we exist in the world can, can be playful, which I think by some uh, explanations could also be considered just being present. Mm -hmm. Certainly. Yeah. Kind of being available to, to, you know, be silly or see what's absurd or um make something enjoyable.
0: Yeah. Another thing about your past that you kind of described in that special that really resonated with me again was, you know, I found school to be kind of a dull and disappointing system that I was expected to master. Um, like you mm-hmm. described being good at school. And I, I think I spent way more time in the woods than doing homework. Um so it was really a relief to hear another adult articulate all of that. Uh, and the woods seemed to be like a classroom for you when you were a child. What did you learn there?
1: I'm hesitant to ever kind of try to quantify what happens when we're in the woods or when we play. Sure. And I, of course, I have to do this all the time. Sure. <laughs> um, and this is, it's a tricky spot that I get caught in as as we move more and more into rigamaging being used for specific curricular needs.
2: Because
1: mm-hmm. I do believe I absolutely... I have no, there's no question in my mind that rigamajig using rigamajig teaches math or teaches engineering. And, you know, we can point to things like the, the gears, we have a simple machines kit where there's gears and it's like, okay, those are very, um, quantifiable learning outcomes. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, but in the meantime, I think that there's, there's so much that is, that is less, um, that's that's uh less explicit that's being learned that's equally if not often more important um and and there's kind of a movement in education the the four c's or maybe we're maybe we have more c's at this point but the creativity Mm -hmm. collaboration um
0: critical thinking yeah
1: critical thinking and communication Mm -hmm. um and and it i'm glad that we've stopped calling those soft skills (laughs) Mm -hmm. because there's this implication that they're somehow less important and i think that you know, that's, that's just silly that they're, they're absolutely, I'm not going to even say more important because I don't think there's a hierarchy of what's important to learn sure. or what are important skills to have as a human. Um, but, but, you know, that said um, playing in the woods, uh, I much as, as what I might've kind of learned by, you know, playing with, Dead things or digging and finding things and coming to understand the um Manzanita Bush fort mm-hmm. that I spent a lot of time in. Mm-hmm. Um it was almost just kind of how I connected with myself and with um with nature or with whatever form of maybe spirituality I still have and had at some point. I think that that. There's a sense of wonder that I think is related to spirituality, which mm-hmm. which we underestimate the importance of giving kids room and time for. And so a lot of my a lot of my playing in the woods, it was um it was it's I'm not even quite it's hard for me to even say what I was doing <laughs>
0: sure,
1: but I did it for hours,
0: right. It was just very open ended,
1: yeah, yeah, and it's also. Um, and back to your, you know, the, the first part of your, your question where that it's kind of, it's a relief to hear someone else say, um, like school as a child, I was aware that school kind of felt like a performance of something I, I didn't believe in, <laughs> mm-hmm. like I, 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 I figured out pretty early on that I I needed to learn how to be school, be good at school to get through school. And then that it applied to what might come later in life, which then felt like, okay, the office job, right? So Mm -hmm. am I learning how to, you know, uh, it, some, and, and this isn't to say that I, you know, that we don't learn anything, but, but it's, it's almost like we become creative humans. In spite of the what school gives us, right? Rather than because of, and it, and I mean, it's just like I mean, can you imagine where we would be if school honored the creative mind as much as it does the kind of SAT testable um, mind? Absolutely, <laughs> right? And I'm not, and that's that's not to say those are two totally separate minds, but there's like it. It's just we have such a clear um, uh, there the the way we do school um, has a has a very clear um, goal and a very very clear ideals that are not necessarily in line with what it like who we are as humans, but also like what it might mean to make progress and you know, increasingly we talk about like, oh, innovation and invention and creativity and all these things. We're like,
2: mm-hmm.
1: who, who can think outside of the box? Who are the real change makers? Who can? And those are the people who've had to fight pretty hard to maintain the ability or the confidence to think that way.
0: Yeah. I mean, it seems like when I, when I kind of have read about your work or watched you work in the abstracts, you know, um, episode, it seems like you're in a constant design cycle or a continuous design cycle with the children you're creating tools for and Mm -hmm. you're kind of learning from them and improving and altering your work based on what you observe from them. I mean, how important is that dialogue in the work you do?
1: Oh, it's critical. I mean, it's everything. I also, um, I don't know if it works until I see them with it, you know? Sure. Um, and and it and often uh, and and early stuff, you know, it came from from there. There were there was a lot of of early kind of testing and input and working with with children early in the design um, phase, and also building on the uh, you know and, and innovating and learning from everything that came before Rigamajig. You know, Rigamajig mm-hmm. wasn't invented in a vacuum. It's it's you know we had Erector sets we had the Ting toy. We had, um, you know, the, the imagination playground, the big blue blocks learned Mm -hmm. from, um, the, the, there's a few companies that make very large wooden building blocks. And then the, the, um, bank street school in Manhattan, we, we watched them. They have even larger versions that are even heavier because they're wood, which is fabulous. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, I mean, everything is like a slight innovation on the brilliant things that came before it. Um, And, you know, either adapting it for a different environment or a different context, or, um, you know, adding things that relate more to the context of today than whatever was happening hundred years ago. But the, um, the, because I see myself as designing for them to design, Mm -hmm. it's the, like the, that loop that kind of collaborative loop um is is really fun like it 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 almost it's it's kind of like you know when you give someone a present and you're like put it on put it on you know Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and 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 it's both a present but it's also kind of as objects they try to be provocations like I really don't know. There are some things that I suspect what they'll do with it. Or I'm like, oh, I want to give them a 45 degree bracket so that, you know, cause right now they can't make a turn at night. So it's not about like, I want them to be able to make, um, you know, a stegosaurus. Wait, is that a dinosaur? Yeah.
2: Yeah. Stegosaurus.
1: Definitely. That sounded wrong. Um, <laughs> it's, it's, so it's not about, I want them to be able to make a specific thing. It's about like, oh, what, like what else what other forms, or what other kinetic things? What if there's a hinge, right? What other um, kind of behaviors can this object have, or or what other types of interactions between the children can this facilitate? And and so sometimes I suspect ways that that'll work, and other times it's it's much more um, like I just kind of throw a thing out there and see what'll happen.
0: Yeah, I think you and I, are, you and I are around the same age, so I think we both can remember when Lego just came in a bin. And yes, there were different colored blocks and different form factors of the blocks, but there wasn't really like... When I had kids, I noticed that the Legos were kits and they were designed to yeah. make one specific thing. So, I mean, I, I guess, what do you think are the, the kind of the negative results of having that defined, quote-unquote, right way to put things together?
1: Yeah, you know, it, it's interesting because... Um, uh, a few years ago, um, Lego education, which is the you know the the kind of curricular based wing um, of Lego kits, we uh, Lego education and and RISD kind of had a collaboration. and so I taught this class and um, we took some of the students to Denmark and we worked with their um, their designers to to kind of at the time we were thinking about what is the relationship between digital and analog making. Mm Um, uh, and of course I, I grew up loving Legos and, and similarly, they just all dumped in one big bin along with like the star Wars figures and, you know, my, the hot wheels, like everything just kind of went in the the same, they were all the same toy, you know? Um, and, and it was so interesting to talk to them about that exactly because they, you know, rooted in, in their the ethos of the company is just that: like, just give the kids some stuff, and they'll, you know, their imagination will invent it. Um, and so, you know, I think they're they're largely reacting to a, a a market for it that that I think parents think their kids need that, um, and 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 I think that again, something about school um, and outcomes and doing things right, and that that we're now like. We're But we're educating to a grade. and so for kids, it's they're thinking about like, I gotta do these things in order to get an A, right? So there's this like outcome thing very early on in mm-hmm. in school and in in their lives. Um, including with with games, like the type of games and things we're playing is like you do this thing. It might be fun, but you do it to get a point or to win, right
2: mm-hmm.
1: So there are these very kind of outcome driven oper- um, activities. And, and I see that eking into so many different things, including like that, that Lego, whereas previously we might just kind of build, or maybe we build a nothing, we would just be clicking the blocks together. Or I always, there was something about the little windows that was really satisfying to just mm-hmm. open and close the tiny Lego windows. Oh, yeah.
2: Um,
1: and, and, and I hear from parents quite a bit and talk to to children about this, that once they, once they make the thing, they don't want to take it apart. Right. Um, and I think that's because of instructions. Right. Um, and because they've done it right. And so to like undo, it feels like not the point, right. The point was to do it right. The point wasn't to even necessarily have the experience of doing. So I think we're like, we're caught in this weird feedback loop of right answers. Um, which we don't have to be kids will still, if, if you don't give them instructions, then they don't think that they could do it wrong. So they just do it. I mean, I, I I think this is a um, very unscientific um, data point, Mm -hmm. (laughs) but one in five, Um, if not half of the children that, that I talk to who are playing with rigamajig, they're not building anything.
2: Mm-hmm. They're
1: just building a thing. And, and for me, that's like ideal. And, and there's even something that I learned um, uh, in the very early days of working on imagination playground with Rocko Boop. Um, Penny Wilson is this, is a play worker in the UK and in the kind of old uh, tradition of adventure and junk playgrounds. Mm-hmm. Um and the, the play workers role is to like support the play and make sure that, that, you know, the, the kids know that it's a safe space, but they, they kind of stay out of it. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and so, and she kind of, as, as she and I were observing, um, different playgrounds or different kind of, uh, play kids playing with different playthings, And I said to one child, Oh, what are you making? And we had a whole conversation about it. And then she said, you know, Cass, think about what if you were to shift what are you making to, you know, either just kind of sit down next to them and let them know you're there. But if you feel like you want to engage more directly, what if you were to say, you know, tell me about this?
2: Mm -hmm.
1: And the difference being, as soon as you ask a child, what are you making? Or, and I think what I had actually said was, what are you building? Um, It implies that they, are supposed to be making a thing, right? Like they're, they're all of us, they may just be like playing with the parts and pieces, or they may be, um, you know, there may be some imagination, uh, some sort of pretend play going on that they're doing. That's not visible. That doesn't relate to actually constructing something. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but this, but then they, they'll, they'll be like, Oh shoot, I'm supposed to be making. Okay. Well, it's a car, you know, mm-hmm. or, if I say build, what are you building? That implies that they're a they're again, they're supposed to be doing working towards some outcome. And B, as soon as they say build, well, you don't build a, a monster, you don't build a um, you know a, a sea creature fish thing. So then if if that was what they were imagining, if anything at all, then it might shift to like, oh, oops, I'm supposed to be building something. oh crap, okay, uh, it's a house. -hmm. You know, so even the 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 questions that that we ask or the way we might kind of prompt or frame a child in their play is like kind of projecting outcomes onto them in a way that that shuts down um, a lot of what happens in play, which may not be building anything. (laughs) Sure,
0: it could be just very experiential with no no end in sight or no goal in sight.
1: And and that learning that from uh, Penny Wilson was such a huge shift in. How I understood um, a- and thought about and uh, and approached, you know designing for children to design. it was a it was a really important um, and continues to be kind of a driving ethos in my thinking.
0: Sure. Another thing I notice about your the, your work is that, you know, especially in the world of STEM, everything seems to be trying to drive kids or trying to expose kids to design and engineering through apps and other digital means. But the tools you make are are very analog. What do you think the advantages of an analog approach are, especially for younger children?
1: Well, they, they don't have a lot of opportunities um, to do that. Um I think that, that my work makes sense now in a way that it probably wouldn't have, like in the sixties and seventies, I've, I have a lot of books, um, kind of the build, build your own playgrounds.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. Um, Jay Beckwith had a, had a, had a really great, uh, book about like community builds, but also just giving kids tires and stumps. Mm -hmm. Um, and in that context, kids had the opportunity to, to work with materials that were larger than themselves um and 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 have real wooden things and actual tools um and and so i'm a little bit filling in for what they just like don't necessarily always get to do sure um and and if if uh yeah so so in that way um I mean, it's convenient because I probably also to some extent have a few uh, ideals in common with um, Luddites. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also believe in technology, and I think that that there are some um digital and and uh tech toys that are wonderful. Um, but I think it's all a balance right as as most things are. and I think as a as humans maybe we have we have some issues with um with balancing in general.
0: (laughs) Sure. No, I I completely agree. You know, another thing that seems to be coming through in your work to me, and I I feel like this is thankfully starting to resonate with a lot of people that, you know, you see children that they should have the opportunity and the expectation to be able to create knowledge instead of just memorizing, um, knowledge. Why do you think that's so important?
1: Uh, well, how do we know that the knowledge that we want to give them is like right or relevant? Right. Um, and. And if it is, then, um, they'll, you know, it'll, it'll resonate and, and they'll kind of discover and make sense of it in a way that applies to the, the context that, that their life is in. Um, but I also think by projecting what we know onto what we see them doing, we, we shut down and and make it really hard to see what they're doing that we may not understand or recognize as new knowledge. Um, and particularly, you know, I think we, um, the, the digital natives in general, but also not, not just the a, a generation kind of born as digital native natives, but all of us, we, um, as we know, things are changing much, much faster and we don't know what, what our lives will look like in five or even 20 years. Mm-hmm. And so I don't think we really even know what they need to know, um, and and I think that that they're um, the the real the most valuable thing that that we can kind of instill in them, uh, and the the place that I see this done best is in Anji play, um, mm-hmm. is the love of learning and the love of like the inherent curiosity, the love of each other the love mm-hmm. of, of their peers and for their, their, um, their context, their environments and the love of, love of, love of learning and curiosity.
0: Speaking of Anji play, I think it's when I kind of saw your reaction to learning that rigamajig was possibly being copied in China and the, your reaction rather than suing them, which I think is, we're so litigious as a society, it seems like that's everybody's reaction, but your reaction was to go and learn from them and start a partnership. I mean, uh, what, what caused you to have that reaction to that, that learning that?
1: Well, I'm a pretty terrible capitalist. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And so, and I don't, I don't believe in owning ideas. Like I really, I do, I have a, at this point, a, a lot of patents because the, as a, as a small business, I have to protect myself from larger businesses. You know, there were a lot of discussions between my patent attorney, who has been with me since 2006, um, and I would would say is um, is uh, part of what why we work well together is that he like I think in his dream everything would be open source. So I think that's a really interesting uh, tension as a patent attorney. <laughs> So, and I think he's also, you know, he's a socialist. Like we understand each other in a way. And we also want to protect the company and what, what, we're, what heroes will rise is trying to do. And so we understand the value of a patent in that ecosystem, the ecosystem of being a small business.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and so, you know, I also, like I said, most, most things patented or not are, I mean, it's most, if not all, everything is a, is a, an innovation on what came before. And, and so it's, it's hard. I have a hard time justifying claiming an idea as, as my own. And in that case, the, I think one of the, one of the most important elements that are, that, that really made me kind of determined to have go and have another round of conversation rather than, than kind of pull out the big guns and try to shut it down, mm-hmm. was that it was the, the person who brought it to our attention, um, Chelsea Bailey, was also working with Angie Play Schools. So she showed us images of what they were doing. And, you know, as we found out more, they weren't actually selling it. They were, she was having somebody make it for her schools um, and it wasn't available in China. So she'd seen it and, and said, I want this, but couldn't buy it. And so, you know, she made it herself. And I was like, well, I certainly relate to that, you know? Mm -hmm. And so it was kind of through a series of conversations. And then also that, you know, that immediately we were kind of able to pretty quickly kind of get to the source and, and as a, as a knockoff kind of, shut it down and get control over it enough Mm -hmm. that then we could kind of restart it with us involved and, and build a partnership from it, which, I mean, uh, you know, China is a, is a huge market all its own. And, and, and it's not as a small company here, you know, I, I have ambitions and I'm absolutely trying to grow my company, but it would, it, to, to kind of break into the Chinese market of educational materials is like, it's not exactly on my business plan, you know, it's like phase 720 at this point, and I'm like on phase sure. three. So um, it, it felt like something worth exploring. Um, and, I, and I do tend to enter those types of, of things with an open mind. Also, like, why assume something that we think is a problem is actually a problem?
0: Yeah. I mean, that's, I think so many people could learn from that example. Uh, one of the things that you said that I think is just fantastic is good toys make good people. So mm-hmm. I'm wondering, I mean, what kind of, what characteristics do good toys have in your opinion?
1: Uh, they trust the child. Mm-hmm. Um, and that comes through in a number of, in a number of things like, do they, are they, are they challenging? Um, which also relates to easy is boring. Um, mm-hmm. uh, are they are they made for um, are they designed and manufactured for um, a, a spot on the shelf or for a part of a child's life that can be enriched by it and and like is it is it is it actually going to is it going to inspire the the child to to be become or celebrate who they are or is it going to tell them who they should be. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of our a lot of our toys uh, and this is a little bit in the in the story that 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 when the story is built into the if it's a character from a, a movie like where I already know how that character acts because I saw it in the movie. So I just have to reenact it. Right. Mm-hmm. I don't get to decide who they are. I don't get to. So and, I, and that relates to like in play, of course, all of it is figuring out who they are. And so if all they have are these options where they're reenacting a character that someone else, you know, wrote and, and, you know, decisions were made by studios and toy companies like that, that's, that story isn't always one that um, is going to leave room for the, the child to, um, to decide to make any, any um, kind of autonomous decisions about how, it, who it is, right?
0: So I guess we can, I mean, I, I, I noticed a lot of schools doing work with identity and things like that now. And so I guess we can hardly expect um, kids to be able to kind of explore that themselves individually when we give them all of these stories that have kind of canned roles and the society has canned expectations for them.
1: Exactly. I mean, and it's also, I think it, it, it again, it's not, it just, it kind of values a, um, an experience on the part of the child that I think um, many toys kind of forget to prioritize.
0: When you're working with, uh, I think, you know, college and graduate students, you told them, or you ask your students to design with function in mind. What did you mean Mm -hmm. by that when you, when you give them that prompt?
1: It's almost like rather than starting with, with um, an archetype, right? So we we try to kind of be cognizant of, of, of assumptions we make, right? So um, design a, rather than designing a lamp, let's design a way to light a room, right? Mm -hmm. And so maybe that's more windows, maybe it's uh, a jar of fireflies, maybe it's you know a series of mirrors that are coming from uh, the roof uh, skylights, something that you know contains fire. Mm-hmm. Um, so it just kind of like uh, it, would, which in my mind relates so much to to like it, what we would call innovation, right? Yeah. I think we we have pocket computers in our, in our lives, our, our cell phones, our smartphones. And we wouldn't have gotten there if we were trying to, if the function, if we said like design a telephone. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And our, the, our, our smartphones are kind of a nice example of this because it's like, it has so many functions, right. It's no longer, it's not a telephone. I don't, I don't very often actually make a call on my on my iphone i i use it you know i tech so it's a communication device but it's also an entertainment device um it's like a scheduling device so it's helping me organize my life um for many people it is a toy because they play games on it or they you know talk to their grandma so it's like a way of connecting and Mm -hmm. and you if you said you know if you started with the archetype phone we couldn't have gotten all of that
0: So really, it's kind of about um, not starting with a limiting description, kind of leaving it wide open and starting with like the goal maybe in mind or the end in mind. The end is to light the room, um, not to create a lamp necessarily. Yeah,
1: exactly. And I think, I mean, cars are such a great example of this because we really, um, there's a, a New Yorker cover that said it best with no words. <laughs> this is where I think like the power of design, anything I can, anything that I try to explain with my words, like I, like, I could point to something, a, a, a work of art or a design piece or mm. a, an image that just like says it so much better with zero words. Um, but the, um, this New Yorker cover has uh, this, you know, young guy in a button up shirt Sitting at a computer, he's he's designing a car. So you you know he's like zoomed in on kind of a bumper. You know we're making these like slight variations on the bumper for like the new this or that. And then outside his window, there's this old man who's kind of like meant I think personify like the the hacker the maker movement with mm-hmm. his jetpack. So there's this like old man and he's got duct tape everywhere and he's got this jetpack on and he's like you know flying by the window. Mm -hmm. and i i I feel like that exemplifies so much of kind of what we keep doing wrong and particularly with like that we keep we bail out the auto industry is like bailing out the typewriter industry Mm -hmm. you know it's just like it's not why do we keep trying to fix this system that's broken like like why are we redesigning cars let's redesign a way to get around which i think we i mean we we're also doing that and i'm you know we're seeing bike shares and 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 bikes that have momentum and power assist and things. So we're sure. kind of starting to break open like, wait, why are we why are we trying to f- keep fixing this broken system? Like let's back up and try to figure out like what we're, what're we're cars about? Like where else do we get like freedom and autonomy and the ability to get from point A to point B?
0: Um, I mean, that kind of reminds me of of thinking about so much is being written and has been written about the decline of performance in math and science and engineering in the United States and students. I mean, do you think that's kind of a result of the tools and the expectations we give kids?
1: Yeah. I mean, I also, I think we're, we, we assume, so for example, um, I read fairly often about, uh, you know, certain states or, or counties that districts of schools where the, Um, they're not testing well and so they um, cut back on recess Mm -hmm. and it's like that feels like a fundamental misunderstanding of how humans and children work
2: (laughs) yeah absolutely um
1: and so so i i i think we kind of need to like for like like oh well you know, if they're not testing well, then we need to give them more tests or they'll like, you know, they're like, Oh, well they didn't do well on their tests. So we need to give the teachers more rules. And, mm-hmm. and it's like, no, that's not both like the ways that we keep trying to fix a problem are not seeing that like the, what we perceive to be the problem is part of the problem.
2: Sure.
1: Um, and then the way that we fix it makes it far, makes it much worse. And only like, us deeper into our misunderstanding of what is a problem.
0: One um, you you've said that your work with children is an investment in the future. What kind of future do you hope for?
1: As an art professor, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, i I see uh, like a version of education that's pretty fantastic, mm-hmm. um, and serves creativity. Like it, it serves the whole human. In a way that non-art education isn't isn't serving the whole human, Mm -hmm. and of course, I I I would love to have that conversation with any number of other types of professors who would totally argue with me because I'm uh, you know I've not spent time as any kind of other professor, but the 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 model like the the pedagogy in and at RISD is makes so much more sense
2: uh,
1: in terms of like engaging with, with the world and with context
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, and with, again, with, the, with the person not trying to disregard that each of us is an individual with subjectivity who's learning from someone else who has subjectivity um, in, in books that were written with, increasing amounts of subjectivity (laughs) who's Mm -hmm. writing the histories that we're learning and like, who are we learning it from? And Right. So, um, so yeah, your question was what, if, if I'm, um, designing for the future, what would the future be? I, that, that, that children are supported in who they are and what they might become. Mm -hmm. Um, and that we can, that we, that we respect, that that there are so many different ways of thinking, um, you you know neurodiversity or just like the, the 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 full spectrum of learning abilities and styles and approaches and brain types is is like so rich and and like on the whole as a people we are it is not behooving us to be not catering to that right? That, that we lose the value of so many beautiful uh, brains by not respecting them in education.
0: I couldn't agree more. Well, Cass, I just want to say thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. And I really enjoyed this conversation.
1: Yeah. Thank you.
0: Thanks for listening to the depth and light podcast. Thanks again to Cass Holman and heroes will rise. If you like this or other episodes, please consider writing a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information about Depth and Light, check out our website at depthandlight.com. That's D E P T H A N D L I G H T.com. Find us on Instagram and Twitter via the handle at Depth and Light.